One of the most ignorant things that so many people think about Israeli history is that Israel was the underdog in the Six-Day War. The fact of the matter is, Israel knew very well they were going to win. All the generals knew they were going to win. In fact, they pushed for the war. They wanted a war. The politicians, Levi Eshkol said, no, let's not have war. They were, But the military people said, no, let's not pursue negotiations. Let's fight. They were even trying to find pretexts to cause Egypt to attack them, which would be an excuse for war. You see, in the Sinai War, Israel invaded Egypt and then was joined by Britain and France, and the U.S., the U.N., and Russia told them no, get out, and they did. They scurried out of there as soon as the United States told them to. Israel wanted the United States' support for the Six-Day War, so what they did was... They told everybody, the United States and even their own citizens, that they're facing an existential threat. Their citizens believed it, and they were actually scared to death. They started digging trenches and even preparing cemeteries for the oncoming slaughter. Now, but when Abi Iban came to the United States and he told Johnson about what was going to happen, Johnson told him, you're full of baloney, number one, Egypt is not going to attack you. He got this information from U.S. intelligence, and number two, even if they do, you'll wipe them out, and if all the Arabs attack you, you can wipe all of them out in a matter of days, which is precisely what happened. And yet, to this day, there are Zionists, particularly religious Zionists, that run around saying that Israel stood no chance to win that war, and that their victory was some kind of miracle, like splitting of the Red Sea kind of miracle. And there are so many people today, believe it or not, that actually believe this. Still, despite the military record and the history books and the revelation that Israel was lying to everybody. Today's guest is familiar to our listeners, my good friend Miko Peled, whose father was a general in the Six-Day War. And although Miko has tremendous knowledge about the Israeli military, he himself aside from his father, was a special forces Red Beret in the army until he decided to give up combat and become a medic, and then later quit the whole thing altogether. Today, I need Miko to give me some advice. Welcome to Committing High Reason, a podcast where we dissect important topics such as good versus evil, religion versus atheism, Judaism versus Zionism, and our pet peeve, political propaganda. Committing High Reason will give you tools to strengthen your intellectual independence, enhance your critical thinking, and hopefully acquire some very new perspectives. Now, here's your host, Rabbi Yaakov Shapiro. Nico Pellet, it's a pleasure to have you again. It's always great to talk to you. It's uh, my pleasure, too. Thanks for having me again. Miko, maybe you can help me. I have, a, I have a grandson who is being harassed by people that are telling him that the Six-Day War was a big miracle. He comes to school and he tells them that he knows a lot of information about the Six-Day War, and he does, and how Israel knew they were going to win and how the generals actually wanted the war and Levi Eshkol didn't want the war how they had no doubt that they were going to be able to blow away the Egyptian Air Force, and there was no question at all. He also knows about your father's interview with Time magazine five years after the war, where he said there 
that the whole idea of Israel being under existential threat was just a bluff designed for political propaganda after the war. Now, they harass him about it, and they say, no, it's not true. Everybody in the world knows that um, the Six-Day War was a miracle, and Israel stood no chance. In fact, they thought they were going to lose. Can you shed some light on this? How old is your grandson? He's in high school. And what kind of school does he go to? It's a yeshiva, believe it or not. Well... You know, I don't know much about miracles. <laughs> I mean, like I said, I, I don't know when the last time there was a miracle. Uh, you probably know that better than I do. But you see, that's part of it. They're saying that all the Israelis, everybody agreed it was a miracle. The, the military experts have no explanation as to how this happened. There are all sorts of crazy stories going around that the Zionists made up about this. Yeah, well, you know, it's not the first time that people who tell the truth about something are harassed. I mean, it's not the first time in history where this happens. So your grandson is, is in good company, I think. It's, it's what happens when there's a myth that is perpetuated by a powerful, powerful, um, you know, it's a powerful narrative and it's perpetuated by a very powerful entity, which is the Zionist organizations around the world. It's not just the state of Israel. I mean, it's a huge PR operation that is that is being that has been in in operation for a very long time and immediately after the war they began perpetuating this this myth and so they're very good at it they managed to reach a lot of people um and now nobody wants to be bothered by the facts now like you said all he has to do is read what you're know, like in my book in the general sun i actually put in the minutes of the meetings of the generals leading up, you know, there are a couple of meetings leading up to the war. I mean, they say it themselves. And then there are other generals, not only my father who said, I mean, even Ariel Sharon, who, who loved nothing more than, than war and, and killing, uh, said that it was a preposterous to think that Israel was under any kind of threat. But I mean, it's, it's so, I mean, all you have to do is look at the facts. Now, if you want to call it a miracle, then go ahead and call it a miracle. But if you want to know what happened, then look at the facts. And the fact of the matter is that um, after a lot of pressure, the Israeli government conceded and agreed to give the green light and uh, allow the generals to start their war. And that's what this was. Um, and uh, it was really, they were the, the, actually what, what they were given was permission to attack Egypt. Since the attack on Egypt went so smoothly and easily, they decided, well, while we're at it, let's take the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, and the Golan Heights, which is something they wanted to do anyway. But there's no question that the, the, the Egyptian army, half of the, you know, the Egyptian army was not prepared for war. The generals said over and over again in those, in those meetings. And therefore, this is a good opportunity. They talk about opportunity, not about threat, not even once. I do know that they uh, perpetuated this myth even during the war that everybody's under existential threat and people were scared. Um, I, have in, I have in front of me uh, Tom Segev's book, 1967, you know, where it has in great mm -hmm. detail a lot of the things that happened. Well, yeah, that's, they use that, they use the fear. And actually, I talk about it in my book too, because it's, it's something that is said in the meetings of the generals. We need to push this idea that we are under an existential threat 
as a means to put pressure on the government. I mean, I remember I was four years old, you know, people saying that the Arabs are going to come and slaughter us. Really? I remember that as a, as a boy, hearing the grown-ups talk about that, you know? Where did you live? Um, just outside Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And um, and that was the talk of everybody. Of course, my my father said it was all nonsense, but we didn't even have a bomb shelter. Cause, and he, we just built a new house maybe a couple of years before that. And I remember he didn't, and it was absurd in Israel, every house there, he has to have a bomb shelter. He said, it's all nonsense. We're not under any threat. We don't need a bomb shelter. I mean, so, I mean, that was his attitude. He knew, he knew the reality in which, in which Israel lived. And so, the, again, if people want to believe myths, they can believe myths. If they want to look at the facts, they like the facts. Uh, let, me, let me read you something he says over here, um, Segev. He says, he's talking about right after the war started. Quote, the Air Force had meanwhile completed the destruction of most of the Egyptian Air Force, but only a few Israelis knew this. Most were enduring hours of terror. Gila Bardayan took Yariv and went to stay with her mother. She felt paralyzed with fear. At 10 past 8, Kol Israel Radio announced that the Egyptians were attacking Israel. That's crazy. Yeah. Here, listen to this one. The night before the attack on Egypt... Dayan, Moshe Dayan, had ordered the censor to maintain a, quote, fog of war until the evening. He, he said, for the first 24 hours, we have to be the victims. End quote. As long as the world thought Israel was defending itself and fighting for its life, there would be no pressure from the outside to stop the attack. The lack of information greatly increased the public's anxiety. As far as the people in the shelters knew, Arabs might burst in and slaughter them at any moment. The radio reported only enemy action. But your father was a general in that war, and he told you guys, no shelter, don't worry, no threat, no problem. And he said it and he said it in the meetings too. It's not like he was just a general. You know, he was part of that the Israeli high command who prepared for the war and built you know, prepared the army and and you know, and then initiated the war and then pushed for the war. There was a reason why these generals wanted the war. They knew they could win. And there was a reason why they were able to win in five days. And, you know, anybody who reads the, you know, the prayers on Shabbos knows why they called it the six-day war. Six days, six days, you know, <laughs> there's a reason for all this. This was Six days like creation, you mean? Yes, yes, of course. Like it's, 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 it, it, it awakens this, you know, this messianic religious feeling of a miracle. And it's not, you know, now... These were these were secular people. These were sec completely secular people. They didn't really they didn't care for religion, but they used this, you know, these very religious symbols and these very religious names. And then you know when the Temple Mount was taken, when the West, when the when the old city was taken, the one sentence that is the most remembered sentence of the entire war, even today, ask any kid, is the. Harabait biyadeno. Harabait you know, biyadeno. What do Israeli secular Jews care about Harabait? Well, because Harabait has become a national symbol, and until we have that temple built on that Harabait, we will not have you know have we will really not be the people that we deserve to be, and have you know we will not have uh, built the the country that we deserve to and all, and all that. It's, it's it's all part of that. So they have to create this myth and they have to perpetuate these lies. This is a very interesting thing you're telling me, Miko, and I, I, I'm going to ask you to 
uh, explain it a bit because it's fascinating to me. A miracle means, and uh, you know, in the context we're talking, very simple: something that's inexplicable, unnatural, and is is against all the laws of nature. And obvious. I mean, if if um, uh, the Egyptian army. Uh, would have been defeated by a little kid with a pea shooter, that would have been a miracle. Or I think, honestly, the more I, I learn about this, I think that had the Egyptians won, that may have been a miracle. But this certainly wasn't. But if you could explain to me, and to a lot of my listeners, I'm sure, they're, they're sitting there uh, and they just heard what you said and they're like, what does that even mean? You're right. These are secular people. Uh, many of them anti-religious. In fact, they created their whole movement to get away from the religion. And they wanted to be secular. And now here they are in a war. And part of the whole idea of Zionism, especially people like Ariel Sharon, was, okay, now the Jews could be warriors and now we could be strong and now we don't need miracles and religion and symbols because we have our uh, M16s or whatever it is. What? What goes through their heads and what does it mean to them when they say the Harabayas we need? And, and by the way, the Orthodox rabbis said, uh, Rav Shach, he was the, the head of the largest yeshiva in Israel then in Ponovich, and, and the stipler, another great sage in his day, he said they should give back the Harabayas because Jews are not allowed to go on it anyway. So, like, what's the purpose? The only purpose, the only thing it could accomplish in the hands of Jews is that uh, the Jews will sin by uh, going on the Harabayas, which they're not allowed to go on, but the Zionists change that anyway. Um, but w how do they explain this, this paradox, this weird thing? To me, it makes absolutely no sense. This uh, religious, pseudo-religious symbolism thing to these people who are not only non-religious, but like kind of anti-religious. So what goes through their heads? Well, I think they do a really good job of, you and I talked about this before, and by the way, it's not just the, him saying Harabais Biadeno, but you know, the most iconic photo of the war mm -hmm. is the Israeli paratroopers by the, by the wall. And I didn't know they were paratroopers. Kids. Well, yeah, the paratrooper brigade co conquered the old city. It's very, you know, paratroopers are like the, there's no, nobody more admired in the Israeli military. In the even more than mythology. tank drivers? A thousand, you can't even compare. Oh, really? Okay. There's nothing like, there's nothing, there's nothing compares with paratroopers. Okay. Um, but these are a bunch of secular kids. What do they care about the, about the wall? What do they care about this stuff? Exactly. Suddenly they're, they're kissing it and they're praying. Are you, what? These guys, I mean, they wouldn't walk past it. They wouldn't even think to do this. I mean, so, but they, but, but, but the thing is this, and you and I talked about this, they secularized the religion and turned it into a national, in, all these things into national symbols, into national, in nationalist icons. So why do we need uh, to build a temple? And why do we need to destroy this beautiful mosque and, 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 and the golden dome? In Jerusalem, well, because until then, we will not have really returned. You know, we will not have satisfied what we, you know, that we got what we deserve. Um, and it's a, it's a, these are national, these are nationalist symbols. It has nothing to do with religion. We're talking about people who are completely secular on the one hand. And on the other hand, you know, just what you just said about what, what the Rav Shach said and, and that Orthodox Jews are prohibited from entering you know, I just came back yesterday mm -hmm. or the day before, night before. I came, I came back uh, from from there, and one of the things I did was there are certain hours where uh, 
the um, that entire compound of Al-Aqsa, you know, the, the Harabait, is open for Jews. And you used to just go up, there's a bridge that goes from where the Kotel is, right straight up, and that's only for non-Muslims, for Jews. Okay. And you used to just be able to walk up. Wait, and what do you mean around. Muslims are not allowed to go on that bridge? Well, that part, it comes straight from the Kotel. There are no Muslims there. Muslims have other gates. Muslims are allowed to go. There's several gates. I see. That's what that thing is. There's like this tunnel when you're facing the coast on the right side. There's this like thing going up there. That's what that is? I never knew what that is. Yeah. And so that's what that is. And there's visiting hours. And in the past, you could just walk up during those hours. Um, Today, you can't just walk up. You have to go with a tour of these crazy settler types, you oh, know, gosh. they're dressed like Orthodox, ultra-Orthodox Jews. They've got the payas and the beards and these big old white, you know, uh, yarmulkas and everything. And it's a prayer tour. So you have to wait till there's a certain number of people. There are maybe 20 or 30, 25 or 30. And about 15 heavily, heavily armed kind of special police units that protect you and surround you. And then they go to a certain point and they pray and they go to another certain point and they pray again. And it's funny because before you enter the grounds, the police look at everybody and say, okay, you're not allowed to pray. You're not allowed to do anything religious. This is just a tour. You're not, you can walk through, but you can't do anything religious. And then they all stand together. The police are all around protecting them and they're standing for about 25 minutes. I mean, the whole thing is an hour for about 25 minutes and pray. Um, and at one point I asked one of the guys, one of these people, I said, why are you standing right at this point? It's kind of a hidden, you know, there's a lot of trees there. It's, it's uh-huh. enormous, it's enormous grounds. And they're kind of standing behind trees. You can't really see anything. He said, oh, this used to be the entrance. And this is where King David stood when he entered, uh, I don't know, whatever. And so it, it has, it's, it's a completely religious settler kind of you know the harabite movement tour that you have to take if you want to if you want to go and see the place um and i took it and it was eerie it's it was weird it was scary i mean it was just to be with people who are like i don't know i don't even know what to say what was the scariest thing about it the weirdest thing i know that the settlers are kind of like pagan land worshipers they're religious fanatics but the religion that they're fanatics about is not judaism it's like a Zionist religion. Well, it was scary because it's it's weird to be around people who live in this completely virtual reality. If they knew who I was and why I was there, they'd go, I don't know what would have happened. Um, and they want this. Now, let's take away the religion for a minute, if, if we can. You know, there's this glorious mosque that's been there 1,500 years. There's this incredible, you know, golden dome. It's It's a place that has... Again, besides the religion... That dome is real gold? It's, uh, well, as far as I know, it was covered with real gold, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, gold, I don't know, gold leaf. Um, okay. And uh, they want to destroy all that. And uh, never mind, you know, again, put aside the religion, but just culturally, historically, it's kind of the iconic symbol of, of Jerusalem. It's... Uh, and then there's consequences, right? And then when I listen to you talk about the prohibition, oh, and and the, the 
it's just it's just weird to be with people who are like who are like that you know and then they look at me with these eyes like oh you must feel you know how do you feel to be here in this moment in this place and all that kind of stuff and it's just like what do you say to these people but i took the tour because i wanted to see because you know of course there's so many things going on and i i mean i wasn't i didn't know it was going to be a tour but once i was there i stayed but it's um and of course, as soon as they open, there's a little gate. As soon as you get to that threshold, a couple of them just prostrate themselves on the ground. Well, so that's so I did that. But again, I, I, for a lot of Israelis, like I said, if you ask any Israeli, what is the one sentence that that is became the most famous from 1967? Boom, it's that. What is the song that became the most iconic? Jerusalem of gold, Yerushalayim sells the hub. What does it say? It says that there were no people in the marketplace. There were no people going up to Harabait. There were no people driving down Jericho from Jericho to the Dead Sea. What do you mean there were no people? There were millions of people there. But the most iconic song has this imagery that is a lie, that is a myth. That the whole place was just empty and like a ghost town waiting for us to come, for the paratroopers to come and save it. So it's, it's, it's a very well thought out, very well planned uh, myth with a lot of symbolism so that it attracts secular people and it also attracts people of faith. Right. So th that's very interesting because there are religious Jews that perceive what happened, what you just described, as these secular Jews becoming more religious or desiring to become more religious or being inspired by the miracle, but it, it's not religion. It's no, a nationalism. It's nationalism of the worst kind. It's a neo-fascism, really. I mean, it's... Right, on the contrary, it's a substitute for the religion. That place inside a person's soul that sometimes yearns for religion is being filled with this nationalism, this symbolism. It's called civic religion. You know, these are also these images, like the photos... They were, they were, um, these were not spontaneous moments. These things were produced. I mean, these things were, you know, people. You know, You're saying the whole thing was like a propaganda campaign. Yeah, the whole, the, you know, the, the whole thing, it was, was made to look like, oh, all these paratroopers, their hearts went out when they got to that place. What do they care about that place? They probably didn't even know where they were. So half of it, half of it was just photo ops and fake. The yes. other half that was real was just bizarre nationalist um the kind of thing that like americans salute the flag it's not religious in terms of like no. theology or no. god it's just no. a type of nationalist thing right where yeah. you you have to bury the flag as if it's a holy object or you know things like that it's it's nationalism yeah. and on the contrary it's a substitute for religion yeah absolutely. Th that's what they did and you know what? And again, it's it's part of this. It's this this entire Zionist myth is built in layers, and this is one of the layers. It's many, many layers, and and this also not only does it attract the Orthodox Jews, but what it does is, and growing up amongst Orthodox Jews, all my uh, for a few generations, I have a daughter graduating high school in a couple, a granddaughter graduating high school in a couple of weeks, uh, a wow. sister actually, the grandson that gets harassed, and. What, what the Zionists want is for the Orthodox Jews to relate to the these things like the Kosel and the Harabais as nationalist symbols as well. See, the Orthodox Jews, the religious people, think that these secular people are getting uh, religious epiphanies. Yeah. 
No, and I think when I when I visited you for Shabbos that one time, one of the guys that came over asked me that question. You know, was it was it a miracle? Is it true that even the secular Israelis believe that this was a miracle? I'm like, secular Israelis don't believe in miracles. They're secular people. They couldn't care less about, you know, to them it was a whatever. Right. The Orthodox, they're Orthodox that spread these, these Zionists spread this, these pictures and they said, look, religious epiphanies that these secular Jews are getting and they're, they're becoming more religious and look how great Zionism is because even these really hardcore secular Jews now, because of the war, because of Israel's war, because of Zionism, now they have these religious inspirations, but it's it's not. It's the opposite. What's really happening is that the Orthodox Jews are becoming more nationalist. And then you've got secular people who turn out to be like Naftali Bennett and Bezalel Smotrich and all these all, and those types of people, which is a toxic, toxic combination of a false religion oh. using the symbols of Judaism and putting them on their very, very, you know, uh, neo-fascist zionist ideology they're combining the symbols of religion i don't believe these people are religious people at all they're the <laughs> they're the devil and then they take these symbols and they put them on their nationalism and of course that makes that makes for a terrible terrible combination but you know you know you and i both uh you know um uh rabbi uh rabbi beck who just passed away Allah shalom you know, he left Jerusalem immediately after the war because he sensed this uh, feeling was 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 developing, and he and he didn't want his children to grow up in this atmosphere. So I, I know there are several other rabbis with him, but that's why he left Jerusalem. He says, "I can't, I can't live in this." You know, they built a bridge between the secular and the orthodox through these nationalist symbols. But whereas the orthodox think that it's bringing the secular over to their side, really what it's doing is bringing the orthodox over to the secular side. And, and becoming more nationalist. Yeah. You know? Thanks for listening to Committing High Reason. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating or review. For the latest from Rabbi Shapiro and to sign up for his newsletter, head on over to committinghighreason.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week.